Two and a Half Admins, episode 61. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, do you want to plug your webinar again, Alan? Yes. Uh, so we're doing Enterprise Certificate Management on FreeBSD. We'll be live October 28th at noon. So if you're interested in managing what certificates are trusted, including adding your own enterprise like Active Directory certificate to the FreeBSD Trust Store, then check out the webinar. Okay. And you've got a blog post as well as usual. Yes. Uh, so Tom did a great article on how to do a FreeBSD developer workstation setup. So how to set up the machine to be able to actually do development work on things like FreeBSD and ZFS. Okay. Well, links in the show notes as usual. Something you found, Alan, was the FBI arrests a Navy nuclear engineer and his wife accused of selling submarine secrets. Yeah. So the, the gist of this story was this guy extracted a whole lot of documents, something like 8,000 pages worth of documents about the Virginia-class nuclear submarines that the U.S. Navy is building. And back in April of 2020, FedExed them to some foreign government with a little note saying, hey, here's a sample. If you uh, want to buy these, then here's the key for a, a second Proton Mail account and we'll exchange instructions or whatever. As it turns out, whatever government he sent this to is somewhat friendly with the U.S. And after about eight months of sitting on it, turned these over to the FBI, who then took him up on his offer to exchange emails secretly with ProtonMail and set up an exchange with this guy to actually have him give over documents. And so you can see in the actual criminal complaint they have here, it's like 23 pages or whatever, but they... Uh, walk through the government's evidence against this guy who actually n named the email accounts Alice and Bob and everything. <laughs> uh, and it walks through all the classic crypto stuff and then wanted to be paid with Monero, which is some kind of cryptocurrency that's supposed to do more things to make sure people can't figure out who got paid by whom. And you know, he was trying to set up this thing and, and you know, the FBI gave him the first $10,000 and then he filled an SD card with secret documents and then stuck it in a peanut butter sandwich and left it on a bench in the park for them to pick up with his wife as a lookout. And then they were trying to do a little surveillance detection run as they left to see if anybody was following them. They didn't detect that the FBI was watching the whole time. So they're, they were a bit amateur, but they were expecting the Spanish inquisition. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I found really interesting was, you know, as he's exchanging emails with this FBI agent pretending to be, from this country one that he had tried to give the documents to. At one point, he's like, that's what the FBI would say if they were doing it. So we got to try this other thing instead. Uh, and then later on, he's like, so you've given me $10,000 and then $20,000 more. That's about the most that the FBI would give out for this. So to really prove you're not the FBI, send me $70,000 more. And so the FBI does, and then they arrest him. <laughs> <laughs> that is just some classic grade school tactics and techniques right there. You got to love the irony, number one, of the guy saying, like, nice try, FBI, to the FBI. <laughs> and then also they're like, the, well, that's not what the real whatever would do. You got to give me a thing I want to prove that you're the, the good whatever. Yeah. But, you know, also, I want to push back a little bit on your earlier statement that, you know, it whatever country one, you know, is that, it, you know, someplace we're at least somewhat friendly with. I mean, maybe. But also, I think there's a very real question of just like. Do you want that kind of heat? You know, when somebody's like, here is 
everything about the plans of, you know, the the newest – I can't remember if Virginia is a ballistic missile or fast attack submarine. But honestly, either way, you know, here's all the plans for this new class that all the ships haven't been laid down yet, you know, and it's nuclear submarines. Here you go. Like – if I'm, I don't know, Lithuania, you know, whatever, I might literally just be like, I don't think I want the U.S. government finding out that I have this and I didn't say anything about it. Yeah, because well, there's the interesting thing of where they waited eight months first. The first thing is there's only a limited number of countries that could be that have some level of nuclear capability where they'd be able to make use of the plans for the nuclear reactor in a Virginia class submarine and that would want it but don't already have you know, their own stuff or would want it. And then, yeah, like you were saying, there's some countries that we're not, that the U.S. is not as friendly with where they might be like, maybe this is a trap. So why don't we just give it to the FBI and wash our hands of it? My first thought is like, okay, I think of a couple countries, but then there's one specific part in here where he, the little note he left in the, the initial package that he sent via FedEx or whatever was, I apologize for this poor translation into your language. Please forward this letter to your military intelligence agency, uh, blah, 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 blah. This is not a hoax, which I found pretty <laughs> amusing. But just thinking, you know, what countries you would bother writing in their language. Like if you're trying to sell this to like Israel or Taiwan, you would just assume they can speak English probably, right? Like or that their military attache would be able to find someone to translate it if he couldn't or whatever. And so... You know, I was wondering if what countries you might bother doing that with. I, I think you're way overthinking it compared to the guy who literally said, nice try, FBI, to the FBI. Well, he didn't quite say that, but he was like, yeah, the, you know, the, the security services will, will only have this much money to, to fool me. So, you know, when you give me more, it'll prove you're not them. And so on. I just, yes, reading through the, the timeline and the exchanges, knowing that it's the FBI, it's just really humorous to, to see it. I'm just saying, I don't think that guy had like a whole lot of thought process behind, you know, trying to randomly Google translate his crap into whatever the right. main language of country one was. I, I think he probably would have done that if it was Mexico. Right. The guy just made some substandard life decisions and didn't necessarily think everything through very well. Well, it's weird because he thought a bunch of things through, like uh, doing the proton mail thing and setting up. GPG and, 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 you know, I'll leave, I'll give you the files that are encrypted and I'll give you the encryption key of what you pay and, and these things and, you know, changing out which email address he uses and accessing the internet always from public Wi-Fi somewhere or something and, and a bunch of things. But just reading through how badly the FBI was up this guy's ass is like, oh, so on this day we saw him, you know, grab a backpack and drive his car somewhere. And then we got the email and then he drove home. <laughs> Like the timeline where they could tell he literally left his house, went to a cafe somewhere, sent us this email, and then drove back to his house. And we watched them the whole way. And he had no idea. I mean, he did those things, but he had no idea what he was doing. Yes. And he like admits that a whole bunch of times, saying, I'm an amateur and thanks for your help. And Yeah. Proton mail is is so obvious. Like, you know, I, I want to do a thing and I, I want to do it on the down low and I don't want to be tied to me. Well, it's not going to take many Googles to come up with proton mail is the answer for that one. GPG is kind of the same thing. And the rest of it, like his ridiculous, like right around the park OPSEC crap, like he had no idea how to do that. He's just like, oh, I should fart around some is kind of what that boils down to for his knowledge level. Right. Or, you know, he, he, he read a couple of spy thriller novels and thought that's how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. The, 
the embedding the SD card in a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I really love that. I really want to know whether that was his idea or whether that was the FBI like screwing with him. Like, <laughs> let's give the audience what they crave. <laughs> yes. And it has to be orange marmalade. Do not use grape jelly. In, in the initial emails, he really was against the whole face-to-face thing. He says, he's like, I'm uncomfortable with this arrangement. Face-to-face meetings are very risky for me. I propose exchanging gifts electronically for mutual safety and so on. He's like, I can upload documents to a secure cloud storage or whatever, but they convinced him to do the dead drop. And that's when they started taking his picture and, knowing, and figuring out who he was. Uh, but yeah, this other one, 100,000 US dollars should be enough to prove to me that you're not an unwelcome third party looking to make trouble for me. The thing that I couldn't quite figure out from reading that is why the FBI bothered like continuing to give him money until we reached the point where he was like, yeah, that's enough money for me to be sure you're not the FBI, at which point they arrested him anyway. Like, I'm sure there was actually a good reason, but it really just reads like they just could not bring themselves to be done with the most fun that they'd had in like three or four years. Like, oh, you wouldn't believe it. This guy, we could tell him to stick an SD card in his sandwich. We can make him do laps around the park anti-clockwise. It's great. Yeah. Like after they made the first two payments and basically they caught the guy selling this secret information for money twice. I don't think they really needed the third one, but (laughs) it might be worth pointing out here. A a lot of you might not realize, but I am a former Navy nuclear power pipeline uh, graduate myself. And when you're in power school, they specifically warn you to look out for, you know, foreign agents, you know, that, that might try to worm their way into your confidences and, uh, you know, get you to give them documents or whatever. And they're very explicit about that. And the warnings specifically cover this kind of scenario because they're like, you know, you never know when you'll get approached. Uh, very frequently, you know, they'll, they'll approach guys, you know, right here in Orlando, just going through power school. We haven't taught you anything yet that you couldn't get literally just out of a high school library, even though it's classified confidential. It's literally in a high school libraries. There's no real secrets here. But if somebody gets you to talk now, like the the more that you have said, you know, the bigger a hole you're in and the more they can convince you, look, you better just keep digging or we'll show everybody, you know, that you're in this hole and you'll go to jail and yada, yada, yada. And all these scenarios. And they also specifically mentioned they're like nine times out of 10. It's not even going to be, you know, a Russian or, you know, whatever. It's just going to be the FBI or trying to entrap you. And it's just like, This guy had to have gotten all of this training. And nevertheless, he was like, you know what? (laughs) Let me just cold call wherever I stand, you know, with the first installment of my copy of the plans for the Virginia class. Well, there's actually a section in here where he talks about all the training he got, how to notice when your coworker might be the one leaking the documents. And he's like, I was very careful not to do all of those things. Which is exactly what you'd expect from a guy who sets up his crypto stuff literally using Alice and Bob. Yes. There's two things that somebody using Alice and Bob in a setup like that tells you. The first thing is, is that they've read a textbook. The second thing is, they've just read a textbook. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. 
Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's talk about Squid Game. This is a show that has been taking the internet by storm, seemingly. It's on Netflix. I've not got around to watching it yet, but even my mum recommended it to me. And it is massively popular in South Korea to the point where one of their ISPs called SK Broadband is suing Netflix for all the bandwidth costs associated with the popularity of this show and others, but mostly this one. Yeah, they're saying to the increased network traffic and maintenance work required because of the surge in viewers. It's like maintenance? The internet tubes don't wear out because you put more bits through them. <laughs> but, you know, I know what they're saying. This is one we've probably talked about many times before or you've heard about. And, you know, they're talking about uh, Netflix data traffic handling by SK Broadband has increased 24x since May 2018 and is up to 1.2 trillion bits of data per second. Now, the thing about that is... When an ISP has significant volumes of Netflix traffic, the first thing Netflix wants to do is say, hey, give us some racks in the data center. Let us populate them with cache servers so that the vast majority of this traffic through your peering point goes away. This happened in the United States a few years ago. At the time, Time Warner Cable uh, since merged into Spectrum. Time Warner Cable was fighting Netflix, wanting the exact same thing. They wanted to get money out of Netflix for all this traffic, or they wanted Netflix to pay them to locate cache servers in their data centers. And eventually the whole thing just kind of folded because it was ridiculous. It's like, you know, look, these people want to save you from having to, you know, spend all this money to deal with all this traffic going through your internet peering point by putting their own machines inside the data center to serve your customers that you're billing for access to these things. What is your complaint here? The thing I haven't seen is whether that's also the case in, with that South Korean ISP. I mean, it would be very strange for Netflix not to have actively suggested that same thing. And I, I wonder if they actively refused the same way Time Warner did, hoping to get cash instead. Yeah, well, because the other thing here is apparently most of the Korean viewers are being served from servers in Japan and Hong Kong and not even in Korea at all. I kind of agree with Netflix's argument, uh, counter argument for the lawsuit here is, SK Broadband's expenses were incurred while fulfilling its contractual obligation to the people who subscribe with them for internet. As an ISP, your job is to deliver the bits your users want. You don't get to charge Netflix for that. Netflix pays their provider to put the, the bits up on the internet, and then your users pay for you to connect to that and, and deliver them. You don't get to charge both sides for the transaction and because uh, then what is your job really you just get to sit in the middle and collect money that's not how it's supposed to work i believe you just described an isp alan well i described a telco <laughs> <laughs> but this is what fair usage amounts are for right and fair usage caps and limits and that doesn't work when just every household wants to watch this show in the evening we're not talking about users, you know, BitTorrent and downloading terabytes of data a month. This is everybody having a perfectly reasonable amount of usage. They're just all watching Netflix. So the fair usage cap doesn't help here. It's just that the provider needs to 
not sell people more internet than they have, right? If they're selling all these users, you know, 100 megabit internet, or it's Korea, so it's probably more than a gigabit or something of internet, but the provider doesn't actually have anywhere near that amount of capacity to actually deliver what they're selling users, it's the ISV's fault. They've been overselling their network. But yes, the solution is what exactly what Jim said, you know, Netflix has built this whole system in for the this specific purpose. The whole point of the OpenX CDN is here, we'll throw some cash boxes on your network and all this Netflix traffic won't even use the internet at all. You'll only have to feed one copy of the episode from Japan or Hong Kong into Korea and it'll go on the cash server and then all your viewers can watch it all day and it won't take up any of your internet bandwidth. It'll just be internal bandwidth. And so, yeah, I don't know. The... ISPs all think that, ooh, Netflix is, uh, you know, I'm going to get rich off suing Netflix. It's like, well, you know, what you should do is actually deliver your users what you charge them for. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first of all, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can join those people by going to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. So Shami writes, I'm moving to a new place and to my surprise, I found out that they used Cat5e for all the phone lines. Not the best, but works well enough for gigabit, which is more than enough for a Wi-Fi backhaul. I was looking at the wallplay access points from Ubiquiti, TP-Link and Ingenious. I've heard Jim talk about TP-Link and how fast they are. Max speed is not my main concern as I wire up everything work-related. My main use for Wi-Fi is calling the family halfway across the world, and with my current setup, I notice some lag spikes even when standing next to the access point. The same thing happened with my previous Ubiquiti Nano HD. And so he's got four questions. Should I wait for the Wi-Fi 6 access points from TP-Link, which I hear are coming soon, or will Wi-Fi 6 also have those lag spikes? Assuming Wi-Fi 6 clients, of course. So that depends on the, the source of the lag spike. If the problem is airtime, because you're communicating through the air, only one person can talk at a time. Because if Jim and I both talk at the same time, nobody can understand either of us. If it's that, then, you know, it's it's literally just because only one person can talk at a time. If a bunch of other things start talking, then you have to wait your turn and you can get these lag spikes and you can notice them, especially on really low latency applications like voice chat, in which case it's not necessarily going to help that much, right? 
Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and confidently say, yes, this is clearly an airtime problem because uh, Xiaomi said they had the same problem with a Ubiquiti Nano HD and with the current, you know, ingenious EAP 1300. Uh, even when very near it, they have occasional random lag spikes. Well, that's what airtime problems look like. So the issue is that even though you're standing right next to it, you've got other devices that are connected on the same channel. And whenever any one of them talks, everything else has to shut up and wait. And that shut up and wait, that's the lag spike you're talking about. Just moving from one vendor to another vendor and still having one access point is not going to fix that. You have two possible ways to fix that. One is to get as many devices as you can off of the Wi-Fi in the first place so they can't be contending if they're not connected. The other, which is probably going to be a little bit more attractive, particularly since you led by telling us you've got Cat5e all through the place, is you need lots of APs. Ideally, you don't want an AP to have to uh, cover more than one room away from where it's mounted. Now, you can obviously do fewer than that, but ideally, that's really what you want. You want no more than one room away that you've got to cover from a, a given access point. And those access points should be configured since they've got proper wired backhaul. They should be on separate channels from one another. And they also, this is really important, this is one thing that nobody ever seems to get right, you want the transmit strength turned way down on all those access points because they don't need to get more than one room over. And that does a few things for you. One, if you do end up having two access points that are using the same channel for one of the other their radios, the 2.4 or the 5, which you probably will, it makes it less likely that the access point itself is going to cause congestion with another access point when it's broadcasting. But even more importantly for most folks, what that does is that ensures much better quality roaming from your devices. If you've got a super loud transmit from an AP that's, you know, three or four rooms away, and you were originally in that room when your phone connected to it, and now you walk four rooms away, it still sees a high TX from that access point. It's probably going to be kind of unwilling to roam. We call that like a sticky client problem. But if the TX is turned way down on that access point that you walked away from, now you've got very low transmit, you know, perceived by your device from that one. You've got much higher right next to it. It's a lot more willing to actually switch. Okay, the next question is, how good is Wi-Fi 6 with Wi-Fi 5 clients? There's not really a hard and fast answer for this. There's no specific problem with, you know, Wi-Fi 6 chipsets dealing with Wi-Fi 5 clients. But I can't tell you that it's going to be good because there's a lot of different it's. You know, there are lots of different Wi-Fi 6 chipsets. And I have not tested every conceivable <laughs> Wi-Fi 6 capable router chipset. In general, you know, your rules of thumb are going to be the same as they always were. Where possible, usually Qualcomm is going to be your best bet, you know, on router type stuff. Broadcom past that. And once you dip down into MediaTek, uh, you're liable to have a, a, a lot less consistency and, and, you know, more potential problems. Usually just because the drivers aren't quite as mature for the MediaTek stuff. So it requires a lot more optimization on the part of the vendor who actually selected that chipset. But that vendor that selected that chipset selected it because it was dirt cheap and they just wanted to get a product out of the door for the least amount of money. So they're less likely to do that optimization. Okay. Sounds like your mileage may vary. Read reviews. Yes, absolutely. And the last couple of questions are, how stable is the Armada software? The reason that I switched away from TP-Link six or so years ago was how often I needed to reboot. I switched to Ubiquity at the time and only had to reboot for updates. And does TP-Link keep their access points updated? I read somewhere they are not that great when it comes to keeping their software up to date. 
I don't really have any complaints about the Emoto software. I, I actually like it quite a bit. Uh, I've used it at several sites. Basically, everything that you can do with the more well-known, at least in you know my neck of the woods, everybody knows about Ubiquity and the Unify controller. And if you've seen that and been impressed by all the things that it can do, well, Omada can do all those things as well. It doesn't look as shiny doing them. Everything looks like a much more basic kind of early 2000s theme text-only interface. Think Charles Desktop. <laughs> Not that primitive. <laughs> Seriously, though, it, you know, it, it doesn't make it at all harder to use. It's not like, oh, this is more difficult to figure out what's going on because it's primitive. It just doesn't have a lot of shiny layered on top. Now, if you want something that, you know, has some kind of futuristic aesthetic, maybe you're not going to like that. But if you just want to get the job done, it's great. So I've not had any issues with stability with Omada. I have never actually had to reboot an Omada controller in uh, three or four years now and probably 10 or 15 sites uh, total using them. But now we get into your last question about TP-Link keeping the APs updated. And here's where I do have, you know, a quibble with Omada, where it's not quite as good as Unify is. And that is in the access point updates. Yes, TP-Link does continue upgrading the firmware on these access points. Uh, you typically have, you know, one or two firmware upgrades a year, which is about on par for infrastructure Wi-Fi stuff. Yeah, you really don't want more than that anyway, <laughs> unless it's fixing a bug. But. There's arguments to be made about that. But point is, yes, they absolutely do keep, you know, releasing firmware upgrades for these access points. But here's where my quibble with Omada comes in. Although Omada can absolutely manage those updates, you can deploy them using Omada. Omada will not do it automatically for you the last I looked. Now, it's I'm probably about a year or so out of date, you know, with the, the current state of the art with the Omada controller, like the latest version. But last I checked, although you could apply the updates, you had to do it manually. And that kind of sucks because I'm very much a deploy the updates automatically and get it done. Don't wait for my input, you know, kind of a guy. All right, and there's a kind of PS, which is, or should I ignore those three providers and go balls to the wall and buy Ruckus? Or maybe that would be a waste of money. That would be a huge waste of money. Ruckus's only real claim to fame is, and I'm not real solid on this claim. I'm just repeating it. I'm not endorsing it. Their claim to fame is that they can get more range out of an access point than other vendors due to some special tricks that they've got going on with dynamic uh, TX strength and a, and a couple other things. And uh, I don't buy that as much of a feature, honestly. You should not be trying to get more range out of your APs. You should be setting up your APs, whoever they're from, so that they're only connecting to nearby clients. Because the other thing about that is, even if you can figure out some way to have, you know, better TX to some remote client that's on, you know, a lot of distance and several walls away, you haven't made their transmission any stronger. That's still the same make and model phone on the other side of three walls away. And you still have, you know, a bigger broadcast domain with everybody competing for the same airtime on the same access point. So you don't want to extend the range on the AP. Yeah, there's there's two reasons. A, the client isn't going to be able to get it back to you. And B, there are rules from like the FCC or Industry Canada or whatever your your wireless regulator in the area is that you can't just make a device that's just screaming into the airwaves and ruining everybody's reception. And to be clear, uh, I want to be very clear here. We're not saying that Ruckus does that. Ruckus does not violate any FCC regulations with like, you know, super crazy strong transmit that nobody else is doing. 
I can't remember the hairy details because I didn't care because the premise is very uninteresting, but um, it has to do with antenna arrays and like, you know, active filtering to try to improve signal to noise. But that's not going to fix your airtime congestion problems when you're trying to serve your whole house from a single access point with dubious quality connections, you know, to the other end of the house. And maybe they're a better grade of dubious, but it's still dubious. And you've still got one single broadcast domain for the entire house rather than, say, two if you had two access points. So rather than spending twice the amount of money or more on Ruckus, get twice as many access points, dial the TX down, keep it simple, do it right. Yeah, for sure. You know, as we said, almost always the problem with your Wi-Fi is airtime, too many devices. So splitting the devices across more access points will give you a much better quality of experience than a smarter AP that tries to manage all those connections at once. Just to kind of drive this home, you know, one last bit, because it I, it's hard sometimes for me to remember that not everybody has lived and breathed Wi-Fi for five or six years of their life. When we talk about it being inadvisable to have this really long-range connection on the other end of the house, and we talk about Ruckus says they'll make that really long-range connection better. Well, let's say that you could get a reliable maybe one megabit on the other end of the house with, you know, a brand X access point, and you bring in a Ruckus, and now you get three megabits on the far side of the house from that one AP. Well, that still sucks, because if you're no more than that one room away that, you know, I keep harping on, you're not going to be at one or three megabits, you're going to be at like 200 megabits. Now, that's not quite telling the whole story either, because we're not only talking about that one device. YouTube, if you want to stream 1080p, is going to consume about four or five megabits, period. Now, if you're on the other end of the house and you can manage to stream 1080p, but you've only got about, you know, five, maybe 10 megabits of throughput available to you because it's this long distance transmission. Maybe Ruckus now made it possible for you to stream that 1080p there where you couldn't before because you didn't have the minimum five megabits. But here's the thing, that one device streaming that one video is still using 100% of your airtime. Whereas if it had been connected to a closer AP where the link in between it and the AP was say 100 megabits, now it's only consuming 5% of your airtime. So again, long-range APs, no, no, no. Proper APs, proper placed, wired backhaul, absolutely. If you can't do the wired backhaul, yes, even mesh helps. If you think through what I just told you about, you know, the uh, the signal quality and the, you know, the total amount of throughput and the amount of airtime you have to use, it should become fairly obvious that, you know, that's why mesh access points actually do work because they replace a single very low throughput link from each end of the house that consumes all your airtime with two links that yes it consumes twice the airtime of either one of those links but it still ends up being a lot less consumed airtime than just slowly transmitting right well we better get out of here then Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at GRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.